Well, it is, uh, it's good to be here. I've been here a few times to preach, and uh, I've gotten to know Brad over the years, last two or three years, Brad and Hannah, love them. And it was great with Michael over this uh, past weekend, getting to know Michael. You all have, they're not paying me, I, I promise, I, I mean this sincerely, like, you all have a great pastoral staff here. And, yes, I love it. And... Um, when I, I recognize a few faces in here uh, from when I've been here previously, but there's a lot of new faces, so this is uh, really exciting, and I am, uh, I'm really grateful for this opportunity to come and bring the word this morning. So with that, um, I have a little fun fact. Okay. So when Brad had sent out uh, an email or a text about this, some dates that were open in the particular passages... So I chose this date. Part of it was I had preached this passage before at my church, in, uh, at Deer, uh, Deer Creek Church, uh, this Mark 4 passage. I thought, okay, that's good. Um, I'll just re-preach that. About a week ago, as I was going through my file, I came across this Mark 4 passage that said, The Table. And I don't know how many of you, ha- I don't know if you have great memories if you were here a year ago. I actually preached this sermon here on January 1st of last year, and I didn't even know it. But here's the thing. If you do have a great memory, it's okay, because I pretty much revamped this whole sermon um, just because I wanted to and with a little extra pressure since I've preached this here before. So it is a vastly different sermon at this point. Um, So with that, let's go ahead and dive in. Okay, so... Now, um, Michael read this story, right? There is, uh, but there's a reality. There's a story in the Old Testament that's important to understand as we come to this story here, and it's the story of Jonah in the Old Testament. It's been said that the more we understand the Old Testament, the closer that we come to the heart of Jesus, And we'll find that that is true this morning. In that statement, the more we understand the Old Testament, the closer we come to the heart of Jesus. It's a very true statement because everything in the Old Testament points towards the fulfillment in Christ. If any of you, if you have small kids, if you're familiar with the Jesus Storybook Bible, right? there's this great comment in there that every page of the Old Testament whispers Jesus' name. And we find that that is true. The book of Jonah is whispering the name of Jesus towards the future. So with that, the closer, the more we understand the Old Testament, the more we understand Jonah, the closer we're going to come to the heart of Jesus. In the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 12, verse 41, Jesus made this profound claim. He said, something greater than Jonah is here. Okay, what did Jesus mean by that statement? Well, this morning, let's consider that. Something greater than Jonah is here, the words of Jesus. Let's consider that as we hold up Jonah side by side with this passage in Mark this morning. But first, let's consider uh, the story of Jonah. So if you're not familiar with the Old Testament, Jonah is a minor prophet. Minor, not meaning like minor league, Okay, minor only in size compared to the major prophets like Isaiah, just shorter books, right? So Jonah is a minor prophet in the Old Testament and and prophet. Prophets were called as kind of the mouthpiece of God. They would speak God's truth to people. So 
That was the role of Jonah. Let me summarize uh, the four chapters of Jonah, and I'll do this in about, well, don't time me, but like one to two minutes. Okay, so the first chapter, Jonah chapter one, God calls Jonah as his prophet to go to Nineveh and to call out to them. By call out to them, meaning to warn them that because of their sin, God is coming in judgment against them. Now, you have to understand Nineveh. Nineveh is the capital city of Assyria, and if you're familiar with the Old Testament, these are the cruel enemy. It's the cruel enemy of God's people, the Israelites. So God calls Jonah to go to Nineveh. Jonah does not like that plan because Jonah hates Nineveh, and he wants Nineveh to be judged. So what happens next is Jonah goes ahead and it goes, it gets on a boat. Um, the problem is Jonah on that boat goes in the exact opposite direction of Nineveh, and it's not because he was directionally challenged. He is fleeing from God because he does not want to do what God is calling him to do. So what does God do? God raises up this fierce storm on the water, so much so that everybody, all the sailors, are really freaking out. Okay, Then everybody recognizes that it is Jonah's fault, so they throw Jonah overboard. And that calms the water at this point. Now, God, at this point, appoints this great fish that swallows Jonah, okay? So Jonah is in this belly of this fish, but then later on, um, God appointed this fish. Uh, He was down there for three days, three nights in the belly of fish. Then we get to chapter 2, where Jonah prays to God. God spoke to the fish, and it hurled, otherwise known as vomited, Jonah out of its mouth onto dry land. Chapter 3, God says to Jonah a second time, go to Nineveh, call out against it. Again, warn them of the judgment if they do not repent and turn to me. Jonah goes to Nineveh. Sure enough, the people of Nineveh repent. They turn to God. So chapter 4, is Jonah glad? No, Jonah mad, right? Jonah is essentially, I'll use his words, it's, I knew that you were a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and relenting from disaster. Like, ah. And the book of Jonah ends with Jonah being exceedingly angry and God saying, but should I not pity Nineveh? So that leaves you, if you read the book of Jonah, you should finish and say, hmm, like interesting ending to it, but it's actually not the full ending of Scripture. So with that as the backdrop, let's look at our passage in the Gospel of Mark and consider Jesus' statement that something greater than Jonah is here. Spoiler alert, the something greater is Jesus and what he has come to do. And where I want to focus our attention this morning, how is Jesus greater? He is greater than this storm. So we'll talk about the storm. But more importantly, he's the greater sacrifice. So we'll talk about that this morning. So first, let's focus on the storm. Now, any great story has great drama to it, and here it is. Um, 
God calls Jonah, or uh, actually God calls the disciples to go. Jesus says, go, uh, let's go to Nineveh. Sorry, I'm going back and forth in my own brain. Let's get this right. Okay, slow down, Chad, here we go. So flashback, if you recall, God told Jonah to go to Nineveh, and he goes. Here we are in Mark. It is Jesus this time that tells his disciples, let's go to the other side of Galilee. So they get in a boat, they go to Galilee, and sure enough, um, flashback to what happens in Jonah. In Jonah, a great windstorm arose, and in the book of Matthew, or Mark, what we read is, the Lord hurled a great wind, right? The storm was bad enough that the disciples, who are experienced fishermen, were terrified for their own lives. The wind was fierce, the waves were high, the boat was filling, and these are no small boats. This boat would be essentially as long as this stage, about seven feet wide. I mean, the boat is filling. They're terrified that they are going to perish. Where's Jesus? Jesus is in the boat. He's in the back of the boat. He is asleep on a cushion. Flashback, Jonah in this story was also asleep when the storm hit. The question is, why was Jonah sleeping? Now, the book of Jonah doesn't tell us exactly, but safe to assume Jonah's probably pretty weary, right? We get pretty weary if we are actually running in the opposite direction of God's plan and calling on our lives, right? So that's a reality. But more than likely, it is because Jonah could fall asleep because he simply didn't care. He, on the way, God calls him to go to Nineveh. It's like wanted no part of that, apathetic, is able to fall asleep, lack of compassion. And that even at the very end of the book, essentially, that is true. That Jonah says, I would rather die than this happen, than Nineveh repent. Why is Jesus asleep? Surely, full humanity, Jesus was fully God, fully man, tired, long day of teaching and ministering, but more to the point, the difference is Jesus had perfect trust in his heavenly Father and in his heavenly Father's plan, his plan, so he was able to sleep. Now, did the disciples appreciate that Jonah was, or that uh, Jesus was asleep? Did they appreciate that? No, they did not. In fact, they wake Jesus and they ask him a question that really is not a question. It is an accusation. So, verse 38, they say, Teacher, do you not care that we are perishing? There it is. There's the question. It's such an important question. Jesus, do you not care? Let's just take this to our own lives. Right When we go through storms, could be literal, but more so figurative, what do we do with God? What is our perspective in the midst of storms? If you're like me, if you're like the disciples, God, do you not care that? And we can fill in the blank, right? Have you ever wondered the deep recesses of your heart? Have you ever uttered it out loud or to yourself, God, do you not care? I can tell you I have on multiple occasions. Part of this is my wife, Tiffany. Um, we are raising kids that are ages 25 to 17. Yeah, 
Tough things happen with kids, right, at every stage of the game. But it's like at times, God, you, you do care, right? God, do you care? God, do you see what's going on with our, with our kids, with our family? I can think back to um, times in our life of just being shaken to the core. You know, a miscarriage after uh, my wife was 20 weeks along with a baby and a miscarriage. God, you're there, right? Do you care? Do you see? Could be other storms, right? Career storms, financial storms. We fear, will we have enough? Is it going to work out? God, are you there? Right? Health, health storms, whether it's you or loved ones, right? We fear loss. We fear quality of life issues. We fear death. God, do you see? Do you care? Relational issues, right? With friendships, with dating, and our marriages, coworkers, and parenting, relational difficulties. God, do you see? Do you care? Are you awake? Sometimes these are the questions we ask, and there could be other storms. It seems that we are always either in the midst of a storm, we've come out of a storm, or we're heading into a storm, right? And the question, our human question at times, gosh, do you care? I love uh, Dan Allender in his book, The Cry of the Soul. He's an author, a counselor. I love his perspective on fear. He says, we tend to fear the things that we cannot control, we fear failure and loss. I'm paraphrasing, by the way. We fear failure. We fear loss. We tend to fear whatever threatens what we most deeply cherish and want to protect. And fear distorts our perspective on God. He led me into this storm, so obviously he doesn't care. That's what we're tempted to think at times. It's easy to fall into fear. We wonder where God is in the midst of the storms of life. And again, in your own lives, when you face various storms, hardships, trials, what do you do with God? What is your perspective? When we go through storms, the reality is we're prone to doubt God's love and His plan. Oh, does God really love me? And is this plan actually in my best interest, right? So for those of you who struggle, and that should be all of us in our humanity, right? We need this passage. We need to take this passage to heart. The reality is Jesus allowed his disciples to go through this storm. It actually was his plan. And why? Because his disciples needed to go through the storm to understand more about the character of God. They needed to learn. They needed to grow. Why do we go through storms? The same reasons. We need to learn. We need to grow. So, for those who struggle to trust in God in the midst of storms, again, all of us, we need to hear what comes next. Listen to Jesus' reaction to the disciples in verses 39 and 40. So I'm going to read verse 39. Listen to this sentence carefully, or you can read it carefully. Ready? Jesus awoke and rebuked the disciples and said, will you just shut up and quit bothering me? I'm trying to get some sleep. 
I have more important things to do than to listen to you whine like a bunch of man babies. Right? No, that is not the translation in the Greek. Right? Here it is. Here's what Jesus said. Actually, let me go back and say, that's not what Jesus said. But at times, we can default to that kind of thinking. That's not what Jesus says. Mark tells us, he awoke, rebuked the wind, and said to the sea, Peace, be still. And the wind ceased, and there was a great calm. Can you imagine that scene? Imagine, these are experienced fishermen, terrified for their lives. That's how bad the storm was. Jesus is asleep. He wakes up, and he calls out, Peace, be still. And it's not just that the waves, the wind slows down and the waves, the storm rolls past. The sense we get of it is that it went from storm to completely calm. The one who said, let there be light, power of his word, and created the sea, just calmed it. Flashback to Jonah. He was hurled into the water, and it became calm. It became calm, but he had no control over it. But here we have Jesus, by the word of his power, complete authority over creation. So this one in the boat, whom they just called teacher, which is not exactly, they will find out later, the right title for Jesus. But they say teacher. Um, He did what only God could do. And what we have to understand, the beginning of Mark, is when Jesus came on the scene, he said, the time is fulfilled, the kingdom of heaven is at hand, repent and believe in the gospel. Kingdom of heaven is at hand. And what Jesus is doing in the early parts of Mark, he has demonstrated the authority of this kingdom that he is bringing as he is healing people of various diseases. He is casting out evil spirits. He is also... At this point, he just demonstrated that he has complete authority over creation itself. He just blew their minds. And now, in verse 40, it is Jesus' turn to ask some questions. After the storm, after it's calm, right? Jesus turns to his disciples, verse 40, says to them, Why are you so afraid? Have you still no faith? Notice... Jesus uses the word still. Have you still no faith? In other words, Jesus is saying, after everything that you have seen, after all that you've experienced with me, after all that you have heard from me, have you still no faith? Now, I'm guessing that was a rhetorical question, meaning he asked the question, have you still no faith? to make a point, and for us to ponder rather than for us to give an answer. And do you know what the most frequent command in the Scriptures are? It is, do not fear. And why is this the most frequent command in the Scripture? Let me give you the answer. It's really profound. Ready? Because the disciples were constantly afraid. And why is it written in the scripture for us? 
because we are constantly afraid. It is so easy to fall into fear. But what do we need to be reminded of here? Jesus was in the boat with them, knew exactly what they were going through and experiencing. He was powerful enough and compassionate enough to say, peace, be still, and the water became smooth as glass. So, what is God doing in our storms? He is growing our faith. If I can say it this way, God wants us to grow into people of Psalm 46, right? Remember, the more we understand the Old Testament, closer we come to the heart of Jesus. Psalm 46, we see the heart of Jesus, right? Let me just read portions of it. God is our refuge and strength, a very present help in trouble. Therefore, we will not fear, though the earth gives way, though the mountains be moved into the heart of the sea, though its waters roar and foam. God is in the midst of his people. God will help them. Come, behold the works of the Lord, meaning recall the faithfulness of God throughout the Old Testament scriptures and the faithfulness of God as we look back in our own lives. Recall the faithfulness of the God, or, uh, or come, behold the works of the Lord, and then these words at the end. Be still and know that I am God. I will be exalted among the nations. I will be exalted in the earth. The Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our fortress. So what do we do with our fears? Well, probably not all that productive to grumble and complain and whine, but more so to go with God and, 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 and with that to always keep this in mind, right? Be still and know that I am God. I am with you. That's the promise. And God will keep asking, have you still no faith? And we'll go through more storms. How is your faith? More storms. How's your faith? Can we really trust? So, at the end of the day, the question the disciples were asking, do you not care that we're perishing? Does he really care? What's the proof? Let's move to the end of the story. Verse 41, and they were filled with great fear. Now, catch this. They were afraid during the storm. Now, Mark tells us they are filled with greater fear because of what they just experienced from the hand of God. So, they were filled with great fear and said to one another, Who then is this that even the wind and sea obey him? Who then is this? It's, a, it's this theme throughout the Gospel of Mark. People are wondering, who is this man? This man, Jesus. So, again, to the claim, something greater than Jonah is here. He is greater and more powerful than the storm they just experienced. But there's something more significant. This goes on to the next point. Not only is Jesus greater than the storm, was able to calm it, he is the greater sacrifice. So, with that... Let's flash back to Jonah again. We're going to compare both stories. And what we'll find is that Mark has laid out this passage in a similar way to the book of Jonah. So both main characters, Jonah and Jesus, both get into a boat 
and both with a calling to a rescue mission, so to speak. In both accounts, a great storm hits. In both accounts, Jonah and Jesus are asleep during the storm. In both accounts, the sailors slash disciples are afraid that they are going to perish. And so they wake up Jonah and they wake up Jesus. In both accounts, a marvelous intervention calms the storm. Then, in both stories, the sailors and Jonah and the disciples of Jesus become even more frightened at what God just did. Okay, now, with a surface-level reading, there does seem to be a difference between the two stories. Because in Jonah, the storm becomes calm when? When they throw Jonah overboard. But in Mark's story, the water becomes calm not when Jesus throws somebody over, like Peter, you know, probably, well, that's my own personal. Anyway, um, <laughs> Peter would be the most likely candidate in my mind. But that's not what happens. What happens is nobody gets thrown over. It's Jesus that um, calms the storm with his words. So with that, um, I like how Tim Keller explains this, though. There seems to be a difference. But Tim Keller um, passed away in this past year, um, wonderful author, pastor, And uh, here's how he explains. He says, there seems to be a difference, but here's what he says. In the midst of the storm, Jonah said to the sailors, in effect, there's only one thing to do. If I perish, you survive. If I die, you will live. And they threw him into the sea, which doesn't happen in Mark's story, or does it? Keller's words, I'm just doing that with emphasis. I think Mark is showing that the stories aren't actually different when you stand back a bit and look at them with the rest of the story of Jesus in view. So how is Jesus greater than Jonah? He's greater in power, but he's also greater in compassion. Here's how. Jesus actually did cast himself into the storm. As the Gospels move forward, what we see is they make it past the Sea of Galilee But he continues on to the cross. And why? Because he takes on the storm of sin. All the way back in Genesis chapter 3, Adam and Eve, their sin, their rebellion against God, we inherited. Everything's wrecked. What does Jesus do? He cast himself into the storm to take on sin. This is the gospel. It is the good news. So let's compare them. How is Jesus greater? Jonah ran from God's plan, but Jesus, the second person of the Trinity, took on flesh, willingly came to rescue sinners. Jonah was disgusted by the people that God wanted to save. Jesus in the scripture was known as a friend of sinners. How is Jesus greater? Jesus cast himself into the storm of sin by taking up the cross and dying for us. The book of Colossians in chapter 1 says, Jesus, having made peace by the blood of the cross. How is Jesus greater? 
Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days, three nights. Jesus was on the cross for three days, died, but he rose again from the grave, proving that he's God, conquering sin, Satan, and death. And where is Jesus now? And this is key. Where is Jesus now? So, if I were to give you a theological multiple-choice test, here it is. Is Jesus, answer A, ascended to the right hand of the Father, where he is ruling and reigning over all things? Is he B, with us through the power and presence of the Holy Spirit that he sent to his disciples after he ascended? Is he C, leading us into and through storms, but interceding for us until he returns to completely calm the storm of sin over the face of the earth with this promise of Habakkuk 2.14, that the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the water covers the sea? Or is it D, all of the above? Danny nailed it. It is D. So you're in a boat in a storm. Is God asleep? No. Is he with you? Yes. Is he interceding? And that word interceding, it shows up in the scripture a few times. What does that mean? Just picture, uh, if we go back to the book of Job, fascinating scene where Satan enters into the throne room of heaven and is like, hey, can I mess with Job? God's like, yes, but only so far as he is, he's mine, right? And the reality is Satan can't touch him beyond what God allows. And then in the scriptures, what we see is Jesus is at the right hand of the Father. He is interceding, defending, fighting for his people, praying Whatever he is doing, interceding, but here's what it means. If Satan himself were to come and accuse anybody that has given their life to Christ, Jesus is like, no, can't touch him. Can't touch her. I've already bought him. Precious blood of Jesus. They are mine. That's the glory of where Jesus is and what he is doing, the work that he is doing right now. Jonah was hurled into the sea as the sacrifice. Essentially, Jonah said, it's my bad. You know, throw me in. The storm will cease. And yes, the sailors were rescued because of the sacrifice of Jonah, you could say. And they worshiped the one true God. But all the while, Jonah was reluctant. Okay? It was against his will. But Jesus willingly took on the cross. And why? For his enemies. For his enemies. Romans 5.10 tells us, For while we were yet enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his Son. Much more, now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. Here's the reality. Jonah was a sacrifice for the sailors in that ship. But Jesus gave himself, the scriptures say, to ransom a people from every tongue, tribe, and nation for all eternity. So after the, or after the storm, 
The disciples asked the right question. Who then is this, that even the wind and sea obey him? And the question is, have you answered that question? Who then is this? Who then is Jesus? See, the scriptures are clear. There's actually another storm coming. It is a storm of judgment. And why? It's a message that's actually not that popular in our culture, right? That Jesus is going to return again to judge. We don't like that idea, but here's the reality. All the atrocities in the world, they need to be made right. And there's only one who can do it. One who is powerful and good enough. And as far as making right our own sin, the reality is, scriptures tell us if we have sinned against a holy, perfect God, we are in trouble and face judgment unless, unless we have given our lives, our hearts, we've bowed our knees to Jesus. And what we have understood is that he is the sacrifice for us. On the cross, if we believe in him, he took on our sin and what we receive is his righteousness. So a storm of judgment is coming when Jesus returns. So the question is, if you're in here and you do not claim to be a Christian, please wrestle with who is this? Who then is this? For those who are in Christ, that day that he returns is a day of salvation and a day of glory where we will be ushered into a place in eternity where there are no more storms. A glorious future. So in the midst of this, my final thought, the disciples asked the question, do you not care? They had to wait and to see just how much Jesus cared. We have the vantage point of looking back. And the cross answers that question. Does Jesus care? Does God actually care? I mean, let's face it. Sometimes we can grow suspicious of God. God, why are you doing this? If anytime we're suspicious of God, we look at Jesus because Jesus is God. Does God care? He put himself on the cross for us to answer that question. At the end of the story, the disciples move from fear of this storm to an even greater fear at the hand of God. And that greater fear is an awe it's a reverence, it's a posture of worship. And that is where I hope and I pray this story lands us in a posture of worship as we recognize we serve a powerful and personal God who is powerful enough to calm any storm in our lives, understands what he's doing as he's taking us through the storm. But even greater than that, we serve a God who loves us so much he put himself in our place as the sacrifice for sin. With that, let me pray. Father in heaven, give you thanks for this morning. Give you thanks for the truth of your scriptures. And especially that, Jesus, you would love us so much that you would take on flesh, come to us, to rescue us. And Lord, you and you alone understand the storms, the realities, 
that the people here this morning are wrestling with, and I pray that you would speak into those storms, calm them, but at the same time remind our people you are always with us. You know exactly what we are experiencing and what we need. Your grace, the Bible says, is sufficient. Your grace is sufficient for us in our moments of weakness. So I pray, Lord, strengthen us. Help us to understand the glory of the power of God, but not only that, the glory of the sacrifice of Jesus on our behalf. And in light of that, I pray that our hearts would be moved towards greater love towards you and a desire to love and serve the Lord and the world around us. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.